Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests today will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Derek Jeffries, a professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, who is an expert on the psychological damage of solitary confinement. Now, if you're keeping up, this will serve as the third of our three Respect Life episodes that will be airing during the month of October, a month when the U.S. bishops have asked us to focus efforts uh, on the respect and protect human life, all human life. The first episode of our three was the one where Andrew and I interviewed Chris about being a pro-life OB-GYN doctor. The second was a dynamic episode with Tracy Windsor, co-founder of Be Not Afraid, which is a ministry that is now becoming nationwide to reach out to women, their husbands, and their young children who have very challenging prenatal diagnoses and newborn diseases that often don't get the care they deserve. Before we forge ahead to discuss the problems with solitary confinement in our prisons, let's discuss some of the harms uh, that are known to cause simple, simply by loneliness uh, or isolation that's been required during the current pandemic. And listeners, warning, don't touch that dial, as we used to say. It's about to get a touch academic. <laughs> well, writing a paper this year, actually with another philosopher and an infectious disease doctor, about whether or not the side effects of sheltering in place laws were worse than the COVID-19 cases they were meant to prevent, I found a, a robust literature that I didn't know existed about how both loneliness and isolation uh, lead to more medical problems and higher rates of death. And in fact, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, we already knew it here. Because what did the Lord God say to Adam? <laughs> He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And, and that being together, that social aspect, now maybe some of our wives would disagree. I, I'm not going to go there. But I know that for the man, it's good that we're not alone. And so backing this up, yes, Chris. You're a, but Tom, you're an expert, as a lot of our listeners know, uh, on personalities and personality <laughs> traits and temperaments. How do we say it's not good to be alone? And then there are some people who just really don't like being around a lot of people. They're introverts. They get charged up by... We need more alone time than others. That's the way we're wired. But very few people want to be alone all the time, which... Uh, good point. And, and so people being alone more than they want to be. Um, uh. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the things I, I found in my research is that some people think that loneliness is a signal, an inborn um, motivation like hunger and thirst is. It's like something is missing. We need something. So loneliness signals we need something that we are missing. In fact, a friend of our son just went off to the most, what I think, lonely religious order in the world, the Carthusians. They spend eight to nine hours a day praying. Uh, they're in their cell most of the time, yet even they have social time. Even the Carthusians do. So anyway, this literature, Julianne Holt-Lundstedt published in 2015 a a meta-analysis, a review of a lot of different research papers, and showed that there is essentially no difference in the health effects of whether you feel lonely or whether you are socially isolated and don't feel lonely. It was remarkable. So your chance of dying increases from 26 to 32% versus somebody else who either is not lonely or is not having to be socially isolated. Now, the... What do you think is worse for your health, is worse for dying? Whether you're five foot six and weigh 250 pounds or whether you're lonely. In other words, if your BMI is very unhealthy uh, and you're way overweight, what's worse for your health? It's actually the loneliness. It's remarkable. Yeah, hard to imagine. Or, or if you're five foot 10 and weigh 280 pounds, that's actually healthier than being lonely. I mean, that is just. Uh, remarkable to me. And this is worse the younger you are. So if you're under 65, the increased risk of mortality is over 50% if you are lonely versus someone just like you who's not lonely. Uh, you know, I have to think, I have to think about uh, a talk I heard from Matthew Kelly. And he talked about never, have, never in the world's history have we had the ability to communicate yet been so lonely. Uh, oh, and that we're, we're thirsty. We're thirsty for interaction, and it's literally killing us. Yeah, I think social media is actually contributing to loneliness or isolation. 
because of all these perfectly curated lives online. But that's, that's another show that we've talked about. Well, not only is your risk of death higher, but your risk of disease, not surprisingly, like heart disease and stroke, 30% increased risk of both if you are lonely or socially isolated. And of course, this is going to play in the extreme version of this is what we're going to talk to Derek about with, uh, with solitary confinement. But uh, as we know, uh, cognition, dementia, thinking, you know, your ch risk of dementia is 50% higher if you're socially isolated. Uh, that's just huge. So there, there's I think bad, again, back to your, back to your original definition, uh, we would say you're more isolated than you want to be, right? Yeah, Not I, just by some objective standard. Uh, because, you know, there, there are people, there's in the brain, the reticular activating system, we call it. And some people require a ton of stimulation to just be at equilibrium. And we call those people extroverts. They <laughs> naturally need more stimulation. Whereas the reticular activating system in an introvert's brain has a high level of activity. And if they get too much social activity, that system overloads. It's like you want your glass of water to be full. And there's not much space left in an introvert's glass of water for that social interaction. But the glass is almost empty in someone who's an extreme introvert or extrovert. So they need that social interaction. And I've got kids. I've got seven kids. I've got an extreme introvert. I've got extreme extrovert. And we've got in between. And um, what's good for one isn't good for the other. And what's good for the family is to put those extremes in a car for a long vacation ride. Well, actually, that's my twins. <laughs> one of my identical mirror image, actually mirror image twin boys. One is very extroverted. One is very introverted. And it's like they complete each other. It's, it's kind of amazing. But that's another episode. So anyway, let's get on to our patented medical trivia question of the day. Today's category is going to sound quite unusual. It's Shawshank Redemption. One of the greatest movies ever. <laughs> I love that movie. I think Morgan Freeman is at his best in that movie. Red. Yeah, and, and they called him Red because he was Irish, right? Isn't that what he said? <laughs> so, uh, during one of the scenes in the movie uh, is when Andy Dufresne, who, for better or worse, has the same Myers-Briggs type as I do. I'll let you research what that is. But he is Shawshank's librarian. He comes across a copy of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. And in one of the scenes, he locks a prison guard in the bathroom he locks himself in the prison's main office and broadcasts an, uh, broadcasts an aria of Mozart on the prison PA system. And the inmates and the guards just stop and they're stunned by the beauty of the music. And even though they're trying to beat and get into where Andy is, he just turns the music up louder. Now, this led to him spending two weeks in the hole in their horrible solitary confinement, which was like half the size of a regular cell and quite dark. Yet, when Andy comes out, he tells his buddies it was the easiest time he ever did. So the question is, what did Andy Dufresne say he did for much of those two weeks that kept him from going mad? And to make it easier, I'm going to give it to you as a multiple choice. Five choices. One, did he keep repeating 25 things he was thankful for? Two, did he pray the divine office from memory? Three, did he come up with a plot to ruin the warden's life? Four, did he listen to classical music in his head? Or five, did he train himself to sleep 20 hours a day like a male lion? Stay tuned. The answer will come near the end of the show. But after this break, we'll be with Derek Jeffries, our philosopher and expert on the psychological, spiritual, and physical harms of solitary confinement here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to our guest interview today on Dr. Doctor. We have with us Derek Jeffries, a PhD philosopher on the topic of isolation, bad for the body, bad for the soul. He's professor of humanities, religion, and philosophy at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He got his bachelor's and PhD at the University of Chicago. He's written books about one of my favorite saints, John Paul II. He's also written about ethics and torture and ethics and solitary confinement. His most recent book is called America's Jails, The Search for Human Dignity in an Age of Mass Incarceration. For over 10 years, he's been a volunteer lecturer of religion and philosophy in jails and prisons. Derek, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. And Chris? Sol solitary confinement. You know, when did that become punishment? Uh, I mean, has it been part of human history for a long time? 
Well, what's interesting is that our original prisons in the United States and in England were entirely solitary confinement. That was the idea of a penitentiary founded by the Quakers and the Methodists in Pennsylvania and some other places. But they quickly found out there and in England and in Europe that this was not a good way to reform people and it drove a lot of people mad. So what happened is uh, we abandoned it. Not, it would be an occasional punishment, just like in Shawshank Redemption, it would be you put people in the hole. But as a primary kind of punishment, we abandoned it. But we brought it back. We brought it back in the 1980s. And the 1980s. So when was it originally? Was it 18th century, 19th century? Eight, uh, but really uh, 1830s, 1840s, okay. uh, particularly in Pennsylvania, but also in uh, New York State and in England. So for previous human history, it just wasn't a thing. Well, previous history, you had monastic isolation, but the prison is not that old. Uh, the, uh, the prison usually... In the past, uh, dungeons and prisons were places where we held some debtors or we held people to be punished in really brutal ways. But the modern prison is really a 19th century invention. Mm -hmm. So solitary confinement became particularly important uh, with that kind of an institution. So sure, people were isolated, in, in particularly in the monastic tradition. But, but that not, was chosen. That was voluntary. Well, usually. So occasionally, monks would be punished by putting... <laughs> In solitary, also, but uh, <laughs> but usually that's correct. So, Derek, uh, Derek, you're an academician, and people choose to study a lot of things for a lot of different reasons. How on earth did you become interested in studying, of all things, solitary confinement? Well, uh, Chris, I uh, wrote a book about torture and torture during the war on terror. And one thing I noticed is that some of the tactics we were using overseas were tactics that appear in our prison system. It was rather disturbing to me. There were these strange connections uh, between uh, our prison system and what we were doing overseas. So I decided I needed to get to understand something about prisons. So I decided I wanted to write about solitary confinement. And so I volunteered to start teaching at a maximum security prison. And what I found out is that I fell in love with that kind of teaching. Um, I wrote the book, and you know I'm, I'm really happy with what I ended up doing. But the more important thing was that I ended up teaching and loving teaching, um, and it really became a kind of vocation. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not in, in the ministry, but kind of a lay, lay vocation for me. So uh, that's really the story. I, I just became deeply engaged. I worship. <laughs> worshipped in, in, in a prison chapel, and I visited prisons and taught in jails. So it wasn't something I entirely, I chose it, obviously, but I see it, as I said, in, in, in a vocational sense. Well, I think it would be interesting to know what percentage of Americans have ever visited a prison. It's got to be very, very low. Unfortunately, it is. I wish it were, it were different, because the prison, as I said, isn't that old, and it was kind of designed to take the evil doers and put them away where we wouldn't see them, but then we don't know what happens to them and we don't know them as human persons. Um, and so, and prisons unfortunately are, are good at keeping people out. I mean, they, they, uh, they're, they're very secretive institutions. So I'd like to see that change. And, and, you know, there's a sign that it might change. But well, if we, we think, if we think about just the American system, um, help our listeners understand, is, is it about rehabilitation or is it about punishment, or is it about some combination of the two? I would say now it's not about rehabilitation. In, from about the 1940s into the very early 70s, in northern prisons in the United States, we gave sort of lip service. The official ideology was rehabilitation. But that ended up dying for very complex and interesting historical reasons. Uh, different sides of the political fence came out against it, and we ended up endorsing a more punitive approach which uh, basically we want to put people away and put them away as long as possible and, and be safe from them. And we don't really care about rehabilitation. In the juvenile system, there's still some commitment to that. But for, for adults, it's, uh, prisons aren't really about reform anymore, my, on, on my, my estimation. Well, it's interesting. As we think about our role as parents, we punish our children for a bad behavior, but it's really an act of love and we're hoping to prevent that behavior. So in that case, it's really about rehabilitation, you might say, right. or behavior modification. 
but you're saying our prison system really is, and it's much more I just about punishment. It. I don't see it that way, and I'm not alone. I mean, there's considerable literature mm -hmm. on the way the American penal system changed beginning in the 1970s and going forward for a lot of complex reasons. So this so is what, what I can you think. tell us about loneliness of those who live in the prisons and jails? Well, we know there's a lot of it, but empirical studies, I, I found the research that you cited in the first part of your program to be quite interesting. And a lot of that comes from very recent research on loneliness. And we just don't have that uh, uh, empirical studies in the general population uh, of that nature. I contacted um, a man named John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago. He just passed away, but his wife continues his work. And he was one of the world's experts on loneliness. This is when I was writing the book on solitary confinement. And I said, can you give me some empirical studies of loneliness? He said, we just don't have them. Uh, it's tough to do research in prisons. And I'm glad, actually. That, uh, I'm glad that we got, there's too much, there was too much bad research on people in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that there are obstacles to people doing research. But the result is we just don't have those kind of empirical studies. But I know from personal experience that loneliness is a profound problem, uh, particularly in jails. I, I taught at jails for four years, and jails are where people are kind of a transition period where people are, or may or may not go on to prison, and there's a tremendous loneliness. So uh, what are the effects, the known effects of loneliness uh, on prisoners specifically? Well, all the ones that you described, uh, I mean, a lot of this has to do with whether other parts of the world in Africa and other places have, uh, they have very dangerous prisons, but they have a much more uh, uh, family-oriented approach to incarceration. People are able to see their families and they don't send people you know, hundreds of miles away like in our federal system. And so people, uh, it's very important that people can see their families, if they can be visited, then that really reduces the loneliness. But there are people, our, our prison is 1,100 men. It's a maximum security place. And there are men there that haven't had a visitor in years. I mean, I worship with some of these men in, in our chapel. And um, so that just wears on a person as the years go by. And, uh, and all of the stuff that you mentioned earlier in the program, I felt found to be quite persuasive uh, from what I've read. I'm not a social scientist, but it's, so it really, uh, year after year, year, I mean, I spent time with men 25, 30 years, and it's just, it's difficult. So we're, we've talked about loneliness in general, but your research and expertise is on heaping on top of loneliness, solitary confinement. So loneliness among the lonely, uh, you might say. Um, walk us through the difference between those two things. What happens that's unique to solitary confinement with respect to loneliness? Well, as I said, in the 1980s, we embarked on this experiment where every state built what's called the supermax prison designed just for isolation. And prison, each prison developed a unit, a wing. They call it a segregation wing. Our prison is 150 men in this wing, designed just for solitary confinement, and jails followed suit as well. So in these places, they're architecturally designed to isolate uh, uh, people, and people don't get out. They're in their cell at least 23 hours a day uh, in a kind of environmental uniformity. Um, they don't, they have contact with other people, strangely, because these places are filled with people screaming and a lot of people with mental illness, unfortunately, in these, uh, in these solitary wings. So this is a very damaging form of uh, confinement, very damaging. And we find that after 15, 30 days, certain kinds of patterns begin to develop in, in, in the human personality. And, uh, you know, I'm not a social scientist. I'm not a medical doctor. I, I'm familiar with that, with that research, though. And my interest is in sort of the spiritual side of this. But, so um, what happens after 15 to 30 days, Derek? Well, people begin to develop uh, a certain kind of irritability, a certain kind of paranoia, a certain kind of rage uh, at their own helplessness, um, an incapacity to really recognize their own self. I mean, you don't have a mirror don't have any, uh, and, and you don't have any sort of social confirmation of who you are as a person. I mean, you, you were talking about the importance of, from the book of Genesis, the importance of our connection with other people. You don't have that. I mean, you don't know. So people begin to lose contact with who they are. They're, they're what I call their self-possession in the spiritual sense. 
And um, that's, that really begins to happen usually about, you know, 30 days or so um, studies that we have. And how long are these prisoners destined to be in this solitary state? It varies. I mean, people think solitary confinement is sort of for the most violent and awful people, and there certainly are awful people, but you can end up in solitary confinement in the American prison system for all kinds of offenses that are relatively minor. You, you know, you, you, do, you break the rules, you're insubordinate, something like that. And it depends. Uh, in our prison, we had something called a 360, which was a year. Um, and that was kind of the standard uh, uh, sentence for, you know, fighting or anything like that. Uh, but there are people in the United States who are in 10, 15, 25 years in this condition. Even uh, the, the longest is 40 years in uh, three men in, in, in Angola prison in, in Louisiana. So long periods of time. Our prison, the longest was, I think, about nine years. That's a long time. Now, can, can one survive that with their mental capacities intact, or does that leave irrepar irreparable damage on someone? It very much depends on the, on the person. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about people who are tortured and torture victims, someone like John McCain, who was quite a remarkable personality, was able to survive that. But most of us would just crack under that uh, kind of pressure. So a lot of people going into solitary already suffer from mental illness. That just makes it worse. Mm -hmm. so, because my people with mental illness in our prison have difficulty adjusting, behaving, and following the rules. So they often end up in this situation of solitary confinement. And then they, what's they call, they call it decompression. They just fall apart. Okay. But many of us, uh, so some people can. I've met some remarkable people. I interviewed a man at, at our former Supermax prison in, in Wisconsin who had brought lawsuits against the state of Wisconsin over, lawsuit, over solitary confinement. And this man was amazing. Just a remarkable man who survived. He was Muslim. He, he indicated that that helped him. Uh, so I think it depends on the personality. I think it depends on what people do. I mean, it's hard. To, I, I wouldn't want to judge anybody for just cracking because that's mm -hmm. what can happen. But there are some people who manage to, to, to survive. It's quite amazing. So you mentioned a phrase earlier, they lose their self-possession. What does that mean in terms of what a human being is? Well, I work in what's called personalism. It's a very, uh, the late Pope John Paul II. John Paul II. Uh, there's a number of thinkers around the country that I'm involved with who are personalists. And one of the things that the personalists talk about is your sense of interiority and your sense of my self and my possession through my acts. And that's what I mean, is that a sense of my agency and the sense that when I act, how it affects me. John Paul II talks a great deal about this in one of his famous books, uh, Act in Person. Um, and so well, the way in which a person acts and rebounds back on her personality and she develops a sense of who she is. And I think, um, that, Chris, there are people who, as I said, manage to survive, but for a lot of people, they kind of lose any sense of that self-possession. They, and they often just uh, deteriorate, and many times they just lose, they, they get into more trouble, they remain in, in, in incarcerated for longer periods of time, mm. and they don't care. They just do injurious behavior to themselves and to the officers, and uh, they just fundamentally don't care. So I made the case in my book that this is a spiritual issue, uh, that it really damages that sense of self-possession in, in the John Paul II sense. You know, it's interesting just listening to this, thinking that um, you could put someone in solitary confinement and give them all the food and drink that they need to survive in a, in a truly metabolic sense. But it's, it's actual hard evidence that there's so much more to us to be effective human persons than to just eating and drinking. <laughs> it, it takes more. It takes interaction and relationship. And um, that, that's really pretty fascinating. I'm curious, did it strike you at all, Derek, that the way we're treating those who live in our nursing homes in this pandemic in a similar fashion to those in solitary confinement? Indeed. And some people have said to me, this is kind of like being in solitary confinement. And at first I was, you know, I said, we need to be careful with that kind of comparison because people in elderly homes are not treated in the same negative fashion and punitive fashion that we mm -hmm. find 
in a prison uh, and in particularly in the solitary wing of a prison. So there's a real difference that we need to be cautious of. But there are some similarities I've begun to realize. I have some uh, people uh, in my own family who are in, uh, in these homes, and, um, and we've lost over 50,000 people um, in the United States in our elderly homes. And over in Europe, it's deeply disturbing what's happening. And, uh, there was a big article in the Times uh, about Belgium, and the PBS did a, a series on Sweden and how to just disregard for the elderly. So there are some comparisons. Um, I have a, an acquaintance, uh, Charlie Camozzi at Fordham, and he's written a really good book called Resisting the Throwaway Culture. And he's written about this in the New York Times, about how we treat our elderly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, I've heard some reports that there's some similarities. But isn't it amazing that ostensibly those we are trying to most protect in this particular pandemic are the elderly because they're at the highest risk of death? It is amazing. And I think it's, um, it's understandable that we want to protect them, but... Some of this is our own fault. We have really bad infection control in a lot of these institutions and we don't pay our CNAs a lot of money and uh, all of that. But then we just went to this point where people can no longer see anybody. And to me, that's disturbing. I mean, particularly as a, as a Catholic, I, I think people should have access to, uh, especially when they die, have access to the priesthood and uh, be able to see people and talk to people. Mm. And, I think we've just given it in a little bit too quickly. I'm, I'm not against this. We have to save people's lives. But uh, I'm, I feel that it's important that we uh, re recognize it's been too quick to say that this is acceptable. I really don't think it is. Derek, we're going to take a break here. We're done with the first half of the interview, but we're going to be back with even more after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio and our guest, Dr. Derek Jeffries of the University of Wisconsin in the great city of Green Bay. Uh, and just before the break, we were beginning to talk more about this, but I'd like to ask, because many people have thought about torture um, in the last couple of years, and um, we could talk about the ethics and the Catholic teaching on torture, but when does solitary confinement stop being whatever it is, and start being torture. Yes, well, the United Nations does, in the international law, it does see um, solitary confinement past like the 30-day period to really begin to border on torture. And, and I didn't make this case, even though I wrote a book on torture, I didn't want to, it's a rather incendiary uh, uh, claim, but I do believe that as a, uh, there's no exact point, but as it begins to, uh, long-term, I would say that it would fit the category of torture. One of the theses of my previous book was that we associate torture with the physical, but mm -hmm. torture, there's all kinds of torture techniques aimed at the spiritual side of the person and the, the mental side. And so I would think um, the long-term uh, uh, solitary confinement of, of a year or so does at that point uh, become torture. And what is an easy definition of torture to wrap our minds around? Well, it's to uh, uh, inflict uh, uh, pain, uh, severe pain, uh, on, a, on an unwilling victim, or unwilling person, uh, with the aim of breaking their uh, will and uh, crushing their personality. We'd have to take each of the, these uh, parts of the definition, uh, but that's right. how I that's how I would understand it. So e even the most violent offender is a human person. So as a human person, what does everybody deserve, even in the midst of incarceration or punishment? Yes. I mean, we sometimes have to separate. We need to recognize. We need to separate, separate people who are going to hurt other people, even within the prison. But that's different than what we're doing with solitary confinement. So uh, sometimes we have to separate people. 
But I think as a person, not only do they deserve the kind of things that Chris was talking about earlier, is basic metabolic you know, functioning, but I think that they also deserve us to still respond to them in, in a positive way. They may reject our attempt to do so, but an to, the invitation to become better, that would be, it seems to me, our obligation to them as, as Catholics, to our Christians, and just in general, to to um, to to uh, try to offer them the opportunity for for positive change. You know, in the interest of balance, I suppose if we had another guest on that was a an advocate for solitary confinement, how would they respond? Because I'm sure you've encountered such individuals. How would they respond to this idea that solitary confinement can and and may often be torture? Right. Well, the basic just there's a couple of justifications for it. One is it makes the institutions safer mm. uh, because it takes the most vicious people and troubled people and put them away. I just don't know if the empirical evidence exists for that because mm. often people come out of this condition even angrier. And I have talked to men who really couldn't function after a couple of years in solitary. I worshiped with a gentleman like this and he just made life worse. So it's not clear to me that the empirical evidence shows that it's safer um, and this is also a kind of consequentialist justification of the practice. And we were talking about St. John Paul II earlier, who was opposed to this kind of utilitarian reasoning that we do things because the consequences are better, even though they're mm. bad. Uh, and that most of my career, I've been opposed to that kind of ethical reasoning. But that's what someone would say. They would also say people deserve it. There's something, mm. there is something... Uh, you know, I, I've taught in prisons, and we've got people who make a lot of trouble and are uh, troublesome people. It, it, there's a kind of sense that, yeah, you deserve to be thrown into this situation. Mm -hmm. um, that's also mistaken. I, I don't think anyone deserves to have that kind of attack on their personality. Um, but there's an impulse, understandable impulse. I understand uh, why people, you know, the, when we adopted this practice, there were a lot of complexities going on. In the American penal system, and it was kind of understandable that people thought that this might be something we should do, but I can't, I really can't go along with it. Tell us about Cardinal George Pell. He was stuck in solitary, I don't know how long, while his um, case went through the Australian penal system. He was pretty amazing, wasn't he? Yes, I read the account he offered in uh, First Things, and the first thing we should say is that it is Australia, and it's the Australian. Very few countries really have our kind of solitary confinement regimen. We are an outlier. Now, we're beginning to spread it, actually. Uh, but I have a friend who's a researcher in England uh, at the London School of Economics who does worldwide studies of solitary confinement. And uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to her. We, uh, certainly in the breadth of our use of this practice, we're, we're pretty much an outlier. Uh, but... It seems like he was uh, pretty much isolated, and uh, he talked about his prayer practice, and he talked about he did seem to have some opportunity to um, engage the corrections officers, which is a positive thing. Often in solitary, there's a kind of uh, battle with the officers. It's uh, this constant fight. There's violence. I mean, the, the officers come in and use violence against the inmates, and they're shouting, and it's just a terrible situation. He seemed to be able to have some relationship with his uh, captors, which, so I did read it. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, some people are able to, to do that. He seemed to have some um, spiritual strengths that, that helped him out. Yeah, I heard that when he was acquitted uh, through the, their Supreme Court, that actually other inmates cheered. I don't know, but that could be. Uh, <laughs> um, it's very possible. So yeah. he must have developed relationships in a very challenging situation. But as you said, their solitary wasn't as solitary as the American version. I would suspect that's the case. Yeah. Well, Derek, as, as our listeners are processing all that you're saying, how should we be responding to this as Catholics? You know, what, what should ring, what teachings should ring true to us to, to help us think through this complex topic? Yes, I think as Catholics, we should oppose. We talked about uh, torture, and torture is something that Catholics should oppose. Um, and I think we should generally oppose the use of solitary confinement as it's developed. And that's going to be complicated. Uh, we began this process uh, prior to the pandemic. We were just many uh, 
states decided that they were not going to have Mississippi, Jersey, they were not going to have solitary confinement anymore. But the pandemic has increased the use of solitary confinement by about 500%. So we've kind of gone backwards. Hmm. And why has that happened? Because they they need to isolate people. I mean, our prison has... 200 and at least 277 men who have the disease and basically they keep them in their cells. So everyone's in solitary confinement. And um, that has been a tool that uh, institutions have used then to control this terrible disease. Um, so that's very depressing to those of us who spent years trying to get us to move away from solitary confinement. I mean, Wisconsin, where I, where I live was slowly moving away from it as well. And, uh, so I think Catholics really should be in favor of that kind of, of uh, movement away from it. Um, but I think more importantly, and this is my own work, I think uh, to think about love and what love means. We, well, we have to think about justice, of course, and God's justice and our justice. But we have to think about what love requires of us in relation to even the, the, the people who have done terrible things, evil things. Um, and that's what I would encourage people. That's my current work is on the topic of love. So what would an alternative for those prisoners who are in solitary confinement now look like that would fit a Catholic moral philosophical view of the human person? Well, uh, we should stop putting so many people in solitary. First of all, I mean, we should, uh, I mean, people are put in, as I said, for all kinds of minor rule violations, but then there are, are they small percentage of people who are particularly problematic and violent, and those need, people need to be separated. But that's a lot different than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kind of punitive aim, which is what we built in the 1980s, a design, architectural design. So describe what the architecture of those two different answers look like. The current answer of solitary, what that architecturally looks like, and what it would look like in a more humane way to separate the dangerous. Well, just put them in a cell, and it's a, uh, a keep lock, it's called. They would just be in their cell, I and mean, then we would let them out. Uh, we would give them a lot more. We wouldn't uh, deliberately change, uh, change their environment so that it's uh, punishing. Um, I don't see any reason why we should worry about uh, those details. We should just provide them with what they need and not worry about it. I mean, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was not a philosopher I really like, but he uh, <laughs> a famous German philosopher. Yes. He once had a great little phrase called the accountant's mentality when it comes to punishment, that we all seem to have this desire to get into the details of how somebody's punished. I mean, when Bill Cosby was sent off to prison in Pennsylvania, the news said, oh, look at his cell, this is where the great Bill Cosby will be. And this is spiritually damaging to the rest of it. We should just not care. We should say, look, you're incapacitated. You're away. Uh, I'm not going to micromanage your suffering. You're going to suffer on your own. It's between you and God. That's, that's how I would see it. I would say but, that. But I'm trying to paint a picture. What do these supermax solitary units look like? What is it that is physically damaging about it? Or is it not physically? Is it just the way the guards treat them and others? And is there a more open system where they can see other people from their cells that you're describing? Uh, sure. I would get rid of those supermax. I mean, I don't think they've been a good experiment. But they're designed, uh, I've spoken to architects who planned these to figure out the most isolating form of confinement. It's part of the architectural plan. So if you go to one of these places, it's very clear that um, the those who are isolated for example, in uh, Oklahoma, they're, they're literally underneath the earth. Okay, and these, these things are planned. So not even windows? No windows, nothing. I mean, I don't see why we feel a need to... Our jail where I teach, which is not solitary confinement, but the inmates are not allowed outside, ever. And there are people there for a couple of years. I don't understand. They say they have a giant yard that I pass by you know, on the bus all the time, and we just... Well, I don't know. They don't need to see the outside. People should be able to see the beauty is part of well, human life. It's important in human life. And so if we're going to retain these uh, prisons, that will look completely different. So every human being needs the true, the good, and the beautiful. Absolutely. Beauty heals. Uh, yep. So if we separate you know, the, the most dangerous, are there ways, are there prisons you've seen set up where they can actually see other people? 
or just even seeing outside, do those things help treat a person better while still maintaining the goal of keeping people safe? I have not been to. People talk about Scandinavian prisons. I'm a bit skeptical of talking about how great Scandinavia is, to be honest with you, but <laughs> there's a tendency to do that. Uh, these, uh, it seems like they do some things better there or in Germany, uh, but I've never been in an American prison where I think people uh, uh, that have been designed in the way that I think uh, what you said about the beautiful is very important. Goodness, goodness, truth, and beauty are really fundamental, and the beauty is completely absent. Well, it really gets back, it seems, to your initial comment about the goal of imprisonment in general, doesn't it? Because if, it's a throw, if we're throwing them away, yeah. you could argue practically, it doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't matter. We're, we've designed the prison to throw them away as efficiently as possible. Um, but if our goal is to rehabilitate and return to society for the penitent, then we would probably have a different approach. And maybe that's the crisis in society is that we don't know what our goal is. Well, I certainly think that's true. We abandon a, a, a goal, but I would be a little cautious also of the goal of reform or rehabilitation. It's something that uh, I think we need to think hard about. We used to have a commitment to it. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful essay about punishment and, uh, and how uh, he says, when I did a bad thing and I'm being punished, I did not degree, agree to have my psyche reorganized by some guy in Vienna. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, it was a uh, critique of the rehabilitation ideal by the left of American public, I happen to agree with it, that there's something coercive, there was something deeply coercive about it. We're going to force you to go through X, Y, or Z therapy. And mm. So we have to be really careful. I would say that we want to, if we're going to have some prisons, we want to incapacitate people in conditions that are humane and invite them to change. That would mm. be my, uh, but not to measure, try to, once again, try to measure that chain. You do X, Y, or Z programming, and then I give you parole. There's something deeply coercive. And, and from the right of Amer the American spectrum, there were questions about whether this really reformed people. And that's also a good question because it's not clear. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the relationship between suffering and change and rehabilitation is just so complex. It's not clear that reforming was actually going on. And I certainly don't think it's going on now. I mean, two-thirds of our inmates return and in some states. Uh, it's a very high rate of recidivism. I don't think we're reforming anybody. So, I would, uh, Chris, I would just caution about that. that uh, I'm very much in favor of, of people discovering and, and trying to help people to, to, to change, mm. not to do so in the way that was very coercive in, a, in the past. Uh, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's interesting. The idea is that I suppose the idea one would have would be you're going to conform to the rules of a civil society when you get out, but and that the very presence or the very time that one spends incarcerated would be enough to motivate one um, to never want to go back to that. Uh, but it's certainly much more complex than that, I, I'm certain. In one of our emails, Derek, you mentioned that there are certain technological devices that are typically used in prisons that have found their way into other aspects of society. Tell us about that. Right. This is something I brought up in a conference at Franciscan University over the summer. Um, and it's the way in which prison architecture and prison techniques find their way into other institutions. This was an idea that goes back to a man named Jeremy Bentham in the 1930s. Uh, who, who and uh, Michel Foucault. Now, I don't agree with them philosophically, but I think they were correct in this way. The way in which prison technology often finds its way into the rest of society. An example I would give is lockdowns in schools. Hmm. I have twin boys, and when one of them came home at a very young age and said, we had a lockdown today, and I was working in prisons, I thought, oh my gosh. Because I, I know what lockdowns are. I, go, I show up at the jail sometime and start teaching, and there's a lockdown. Go home. You're not going to teach today. And we had, we had lockdowns at our prison that lasted months. Why is this language used in our school system uh, to children? It's very strange. Huh. Why, why do we adopt this notion? So there's all kinds of instances in society. And I mentioned, uh, Tom, that, that, uh, you, that this was where 
the stuff about elderly uh, people in elderly homes might also be relevant certain kinds of practices of because if something's useful why not use it it's in a prison hey use it in a school that's the nature of technological innovation the technology you know kind of does that if something is useful then we uh make use of it so that's what i meant by, by that mm. wow How fascinating awful so you know to try to wrap this up what would a pro-life response look like to our epidemic of loneliness, with, which is spilling into and out of the prisons and prison technology? Well, I wanted to s distinguish between having a lot of people around you and loneliness because a person, uh, uh, loneliness is about perceived social isolation. That's what the experts talk about it. And so you could be in New York City, have lots of people around you and still be very lonely. I grew up in that city, and I've met a lot, met a lot of lonely people in the middle of Manhattan. So uh, it, it's very tricky to think about how to respond to somebody who's lonely. Uh, what I've been working on is the idea of love, love as presence, uh, being present to another. And I have been working on the philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand, who's a philosopher uh, from originally from Germany, but who taught in, uh, at Fordham University in New York City. And he has a beautiful book called The Essence of Love. So I'm interested in St. John Paul II also wrote a book called Love and Responsibility. Yes. So what does it mean to love other people and be uh, present to them? And that seems to me to be an important, whether it's the work that I do, which is talking to people and worshiping with people in prisons, to me, that's a kind of a presence that I try to, to embody, or whether it's much more difficult with people in elderly homes right now because we can't be with them, which yes. is a problem. And we have to find ways uh, to, to do that, technological ways to try to be closer to people. Uh, but that seems to be the, the, the pro-life response. It's to love, and it uh, doesn't mean you don't you know, confine people or something like that, but what does it mean to love other people and be present to them? And finally, what resources would you recommend for people who want to learn more about this or do more about it? Yeah, I would recommend, well, I've written a, a book myself called Spirituality. It's pushed my own work, but Spirituality uh, and uh, uh, Solitary Confinement. And uh, it's, a, it's a work and a book on jails. Uh, but there's some work uh, from a Christian standpoint uh, on solitary confinement, not as much as I, I would like to see. In terms of love, what I just mentioned, yes. the extraordinary work of uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, St. John Paul II. His book on love and responsibility is a very interesting book from the, from the 1950s. It's a quite intriguing. Derek, thanks for bringing a, a, a perspective on something we've never talked about on the show. I really appreciate our friend Dr. Pete Colosi uh, introducing us. Thanks for being with us on Dr. Doc. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Chris. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer to our trivia question about one of my most favorite movies. Yes, in Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne was actually tossed twice into the hole, once for two weeks and once for 30 days. After his two-week stint, when he came out, he told his fellow inmates that was uh, two of the easiest weeks he'd ever, ever spent. But what did he say he did to keep from going mad? I read the list earlier. Chris, do you remember this scene? The answer is he listened to classical music, not on his iPod or his iPhone, uh, but in his head. Yeah, he, he, he pointed to his head with his index finger and said, I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. <laughs> and he says, it's in here when he touches his head. And in here he touched his heart. And he said, the beauty of music is something they can't take from you. That's something about the power, uh, the power, the transformative power, maybe of beauty. You know, I've heard I've heard other speakers that were uh, prisoners of war in Vietnam and the like, who said that uh, poetry and Bible verses they memorized is what preserved their sanity. This idea that something inside your head, something intrinsic, could uh, could keep you level, so to speak, uh, even in in such terrible conditions. Objective truth, goodness, and beauty, and it's. Mm. It's got to be so hard to find beauty in those situations. Well, this has got to be one of our most interesting episodes, I think. Uh, Derek Jeffries, a fascinating man, has clearly dedicated his work to, to uh, the redemptive, redemptive power of love uh, and yes. human interaction. 
Um, and I just kept thinking as we we're listening to him, people are, are quite literally dying for human interaction. Uh, we yes. have all kinds of scientific data that you reviewed at the beginning that uh, it's more dangerous than being obese to, to feel subjectively lonely. And now it can even cause damage to those that you would think couldn't be damaged, uh, prisoners and in uh, in prison population, so it's pretty telling. This is this pandemic has been evil in so many ways, not the least of which it's caused isolation. No, and it's it's personal to me because my mother-in-law died a few miles from Derek Jeffrey of loneliness mm. uh, in a nursing home where she was in assisted living, and she just didn't understand why she couldn't visit people. Um, mm. And she just stopped eating in June, and a couple weeks later in July. Um, they tried to, you know, put food in her in a hospital and, and she died. She literally wow. died of loneliness, not of COVID. Uh, remarkable. I, I have a relative in an assisted living facility. And when I asked him what it was like, his response was, now I know what it's like to be in prison. Um, because people are afraid to come in. They're not allowed to come in. They stand at the door. There's no human touch. I think that's another whole fascinating topic of you know isolationism is the absence of human touch human touch um, touch yeah. heals. well we've come to the end of another episode but we thank you faithful listeners for being with us for another episode of dr doctor the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the catholic medical association we come to you from the virtual studios of redeemer radio on the ewtn global catholic radio network And we'd hope that you'll share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to us on their favorite podcast or, of course, at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show because it helps other listeners find us. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.